This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover, while full membership gets you all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn not about the past, as we just did in our retrospective episode, but we look to the future we need to build and the burgeoning call for a progressivism that looks beyond national borders to create policies, solidarity, and power that spans the world. Clips today come from Progressive International, Who, What, Why, Start Making Sense, Jacobin Radio, and a TED Talk from Naomi Klein. There is a global struggle taking place of enormous consequence. Nothing less than the future of humanity is at stake. All around us, we see the status quo is failing. The top 1% now controls half the world's wealth, while hundreds of millions of workers remain trapped between poverty and precarity. Where globalization promised prosperity, it's delivered financial crisis and endless war instead. All the while, our climate moves closer to destruction. Out of this crisis, global authoritarianism is rising. These leaders promise to restore national pride by attacking minorities, a free press and democracy itself. But in the end, they only serve themselves. A chilling echo of the 1930s. Today's authoritarian leaders do not stand alone. They are part of a global axis of right-wing parties that shares funders, strategy and contacts. And around the world, they are gaining power. The time has come to form our own common front in the fight for global peace and prosperity. This movement will bring people together across the global left to think about the world we want to live in and how we make it a reality. A grassroots movement mobilizing working people all around the world behind a shared vision of democracy, sustainability and solidarity. We will no longer settle for reformism. We will reach out to communities in every corner of the world and build shared power and solidarity. In every country, there are people who are fighting for progress. And we are so much stronger together. It is time for progressives of the world to unite. Let us begin today building a better tomorrow. things about the crisis, we tend to think of it in very domestic terms. We think of it in terms of, of the state of the economy at the time, the housing bubble, the, the debt levels that existed at the time. But one of the points you make is that we need to be looking at this really as the first crisis of the global age. Yeah, and that's really one of my missions in this book is to, to show 
readers both on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond how interconnected this crisis was. I mean, the biggest, the most dangerous banks in the world were not American uh, in 2007, eight. They were European. What? Probably RBS, the British bank, was the, the largest and most dangerous of the all. Had to, of all had to be nationalized. It had a balance sheet about three times the, the size of Lehman. Um, the interconnections ran deep on both sides. About a third of the most toxic subprime uh, securitized in the final stages of the crisis was ended up on European balance sheets. American money market mutual funds, you know, the favored savings vehicle for better off Americans, were deep up to their necks in European bank debt because it offered slightly better yields than American equivalents. This was a story that really crossed the Atlantic um, and rippled out from there to South Korea, to Russia, and then by way of trade to China, Japan. It's a truly comprehensive crisis of the, the financial system globally. Why was that aspect of it so underreported at the time? And how crucial is this fact to what really needed to be done to address the crisis at the time? Well, I think in fairness to reporting at the time, um, you couldn't read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal in that period and not be aware of the fact that the European banks were in crisis. I think it's kind of like the short-term memory is where the work was done of largely burying this. And I think there is then on top of that natural tendency to produce simpler stories that speak to national crises. And as the pain of the crisis bit, you know, each society had to come to terms with it in its own way, and it produces a national story to do that. Beyond that kind of process, there's also a politics here. Because if bailing out your banks is bad enough, the thought that you might be providing assistance of whatever form uh, to foreign banks is almost, you know, unspeakable in political terms. And yet it's true that the Federal Reserve of the United States did not bail out European banks, but it had to provide them with liquidity, which is swapping illiquid long-term assets for short-term cash on an absolutely epic scale. And it didn't do that out of some sort of, you know, misplaced belief in its own superhuman powers and some desire to be a global hegemon for its own sake. It was doing it because it felt that unless it supported the European banks, they would engage in a huge sale of American assets and destabilize the American economy. But that degree of interdependence is really difficult for people to digest. It's easier to think of this as an American problem with American origins, with American solutions. If, in fact, there had been an acknowledgement of the scope of the crisis at the time, might the solutions and might the, the policies that were put in place been any different? And might that have been helpful? Well, I think you have to give the Americans credit. They did a global fix without really publicly announcing or trumpeting it. Uh, I think where, you, where your question really has real force is in Europe, where there was a kind of vigorous pushback by national governments from a very early stage against the entire idea of a joined-up collective response. And so the purpose in revealing this side of the story for me is on the one hand, in fact, as it were, to make America aware of its continued centrality to global financial stability. The world may be, find it a little hard to live with the Americans at times, but we can't really live without them. And on the European side, uh, the book is really trying to show how deep the dependence of European finance on America was. And one of the other aspects of this that grows out of looking at this on such a global scale is the degree to which, A, that we're still feeling the ripple effects of it and that the consequences of it are a lot deeper and more pervasive than we had any idea of. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to Europeans in the hardest hit countries, they're not out of the crisis yet. Youth unemployment in countries like Spain and Italy is still appallingly high. There's been virtually no growth in Italy since 2008. 
they're not out the other side. But beyond that, I think the really crucial thing to understand is that the countermeasures taken to stop the crisis in its tracks were themselves transformative. So above all, what the Fed does is to just pump extraordinary quantities of cheap dollars into the global economy. And business people around the world in emerging markets in particular with really rapid growth where you know credit is scarce and more expensive than it is in the United States borrowed those dollars and put them into business ventures around the emerging markets, so-called. And that creates an interdependence that we still really haven't fathomed. We're seeing it's a live test, a live experiment right now, how this interconnected global economy, which uh, now is heavily even more dependent than ever really on the dollar as its standard medium, how it responds to somebody yanking the chain, how it responds when the Fed raises interest rates. Does that put us at greater risk or less risk now by spreading that risk around? We don't. To be honest, we don't know. I mean, we we have estimates. We think that the uh, European-American axis has been de-risked to a certain extent. And this is part on the business decisions of European banks, but it's also concerted effort behind the scenes by American regulators who just told European banks that if they wanted to run big banking businesses in America, they would have to subject themselves to the same rules as American banks and have some capital in the US. And faced with that apparently reasonable proposition, American many European banks decided to actually pull out of their American businesses. So those kind of angles have been de-risked. I think what we don't know about really is what new types of risk might have been created by the interdependence between the United States and the emerging market economies. And how does China fit into that equation? It's the big question mark over the entire world economy right now. You know, once upon a time, China was an emerging market. Once upon a time, it was a small, dramatic and exciting bit of the world economy. Right now, it's by far and away the most important factor in the world economy, full stop. Not the same size as America, far bigger in terms of driving global growth. 30% of all growth in the global economy comes from China. That's the same as the United States and Europe put together. We are already beyond the tipping point. We're in a world now in which Chinese economic growth is the big story. And whether or not the Beijing, whether or not the national authorities in China can manage that, and it's a rampaging growth story driven by credit. If they can organize a soft landing, we have one world. If we hit a hard landing, hit the buffers hard in China, we're in a different reality. And the question, of course, is who is entangled with that? GM right now sells more cars in China uh, than it does uh, in the United States. Uh, Apple's entire manufacturing authorization uh, for iPhones runs out of China. Uh, in terms of finance, it's the British banks, which are most deeply entangled with the Chinese. So we're in a new constellation. And the old models of cooperation that were so familiar from the transatlantic world, those old models of inter, uh, interconnectedness and interdependence, none of those necessarily extend uh, in the Chinese scenario. Given the degree of regulation we have now and the regulation that we've put in place since the crash, is that a help or a hindrance to the stability of the system today? I mean, regulation is the entire game because we didn't in 2008-9 fundamentally change the system. Both in Europe and the United States, the decision was taken that it was too risky, too difficult, not even desirable. But basically the way to do this was to take the same old, you know, high-speed, rickety, souped-up uh, hot rod of a financial system that we have. And rather than, you know, turning it into a more sensible vehicle, um, basically just improve the brakes, uh, uh, clean the windshield so we could see a little bit more clearly ahead, fix the wipers, and then, you know, make sure the headlights are going and then keep on trucking. And that is the route that we've gone down. So the entire game uh, in terms of future financial stability is regulation. And the regulations that matter most probably are the ones at the global level where 30 banks were identified as systemically important financial institutions. 
and they are subject to a level of regulation that banks have not been subject to before. Now, that can be gamed at absolutely every level. And the entire, if you like, question of financial stability depends on how that game is played. And it ought, in my view anyway, to be a highly political business, because this is where society and politics decides what kind of risk that we want our financial system to subject us to. Because we know that when those institutions fail, most likely whatever preparations we put in place, we're going to have to backstop them. (laughs) And they are doing this, of course. They are doing this with profit in mind. So there is a fundamental set of trade-offs that have to be made, both at the national and the global level, that centre on the kind of regulations that we put in place. It's technical stuff, but it's really decisive for the future of economic and indeed social policy going forward. Now it's time to talk about a foreign policy for the left. That happens to be the title of a new book by Michael Walzer. He was the editor of Dissent magazine for more than three decades. He's written many books, the best known of which is Just and Unjust Wars. He's also written for the New Republic and the New York Review and recently for The Nation. He's also an old teacher of mine and an old friend. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, John, for having me. Well, you are a democratic socialist, and Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist. I've been trying to remember his foreign policy positions during the campaign. Well, he didn't have any. Because he's Jewish, he had to give one speech on Israel-Palestine, which was a good speech. But otherwise, he did not talk about foreign policy, and, and that is, in fact, one of the one of the things that led me to um, rewrite a group of dissent essays and make a book out of them about a left foreign policy. A lot of leftists prefer to talk about domestic policy. In fact, most people who are leftists are leftists because because we've been right again and again about domestic politics, about labor rights and civil rights and racial equality and gender equality and welfare and health care and public education. But on foreign policy, not so much. We've either had nothing to say or too little to say, or we've gotten things wrong. And that's what I'm trying to uh, those, that's what I'm trying to address. Bernie Sanders did have some foreign policy advisors, didn't he? <laughs> yes, when he was asked to list his advisors, he included me and a group of four. We had had one 20-minute conversation two years before about Syria, in which indeed we had agreed that we didn't know what to do. But when he listed me as a foreign policy advisor, I realized he did not have any foreign policy advisors, and he really didn't have um, a foreign policy. So what advice would you have for Bernie Sanders and the rest of us Democratic Socialists? What are the basic principles of a foreign policy for the left? Well, we need to be internationalists, and that means we need to be in touch with um, comrades abroad, and that means we need to think hard about uh, what Ignacio Saloni calls the choice of comrades, who are our comrades abroad. 
And we also need to attend to the well-being in the world of our fellow citizens. Can I give an extended example? Please. The national security state that we live in is a right-wing creation. The Patriot Act, massive surveillance, huge military budgets, the militarization of the police. Well, you know, it's a, this is a right-wing creation. And we've been against all of it, rightly against all of it. But we don't have an alternative. It's as if we are not interested in the security of our fellow citizens. Social security, we're very good. (laughs) National security, not so much. And one of the reasons for that has been a persistent refusal to recognize enemies abroad and to think about the possible need sometimes to use force abroad. In the 1930s, uh, French socialists and British laborites consistently voted against rearmament in the face of the Nazis. Uh, Norman Thomas, our much-loved socialist leader, wrote a book, he published a book in 1939 called Keep America Out of War, arguing for a massive reduction of the military budget in 1939. During much of the Cold War, many American leftists insisted that there was no, that the only reason for the Cold War was American aggression, and, um, and there was no security threat from uh, the Soviet Union. In the early years of Islamist radicalism after 9-11, there were many leftists insisting that before before Boko Haram began kidnapping schoolgirls and ISIS began beheading infidels, there were many leftists arguing that uh, this was just another version of anti-imperialism and, and refusing to recognize um, a threat that needed to be addressed. So we we have no alternative to the national security state that the right has created. And that's because we're not looking around in the world and seeing what needs to be what needs to be seen. Let's look at some of the hard cases. Islamism, ISIS, should the United States take Military action against ISIS in, you know, three or four or five countries around the world. I'm sure if you asked our comrades in Syria and elsewhere, they would say, yes, please, you know, bomb them, uh, destroy them. But in Syria, at least, the alternative to ISIS seems like Assad. Is this a case where you're in favor of doing what our Syrian comrades are would ask us to do? Well, let's let's begin with the Iraq case and okay. get to Syria, which is harder. In Iraq, I was against the 2003 invasion, but I did support American intervention against ISIS. For example, I strongly supported the rescue of the Yazidi people who were threatened, quite literally threatened, with massacre and enslavement. And in fact, that was a rescue carried out by Kurds on the ground in the U.S. Air Force, and most of my friends on the left thought it was a good idea to do it, although to a man and to a woman, they would all have voted against the military budgets that made it possible. 
which is one of my arguments with uh, the, there's this reflex of voting against the military budget when we should be, what we should be doing is looking at the military budget and saying no here and yes here this is what we want america to be able to do and this is what we don't want america to be able to do that would be a serious engagement and they, that's been rare on the left in syria at the beginning the people we call the good guys, the democratic left, the Demo they call themselves secular Democrats. I suppose they did want American help. And I think um, Obama was told by American operatives on the ground that these were indeed the good guys, but there weren't a lot of them. And they couldn't hold on to sophisticated weapons if we supplied them. And so Obama decided, probably rightly, not to go in. But the left, my book is a foreign policy for the left. The left wasn't getting reports from operatives in the field. We should have been talking to those secular Democrats, and we, sh we should have been asking them, what can we do to help you? Not, not the U.S. government. What can we do? Should we be picketing Syrian embassies? Should we be organizing demonstrations? Should we be publicizing the names of people who get arrested in the hopes that that will help them survive? Maybe we should be organizing an international brigade. There was talk about an international brigade at the beginning of the Syrian thing. ISIS is an international brigade. Yeah. <laughs> Islam, Islamists can recruit in many countries. Um, the left right now can't, except I suppose that the, the volunteers for um, Amnesty International or, or Doctors Without Borders or um, Human Rights Watch, their staff, those are our brigadiers. Yeah. But they are, um, they're unarmed. Anyway, there were things we could do. And that, that is enormously important. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. Experience beautiful multidimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a best of love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code LEFT. Something that's bothered me for close to 20 years now, um, uh, ever since the, the anti-globalization movement arrived in the scene in the 90s, is um, the lack of anything on the left resembling uh, a cosmopolitan vision, some kind of you know, what used to be called in the old Stalinist days proletarian internationalism. Uh, all the objections to uh, coming from 
much of the left uh, over the last years uh, on these issues of globalization. All the ideas have been to promote nationalism, regionalism, localism. There's no, there has been no vocabulary of solidarity across borders. What do you think about that? Well, I agree entirely. This is uh, the major failure failure of the left. On the one hand, you have um, you know very good good people on the ecological front, um, uh, green parties, ecological organizations, uh, organizations against climate change uh, that are making all the correct noises against the destruction of the pla- planet. But they lack this what you refer to as uh, an international. A proletarian internationalism that will answer the question, okay, so how can we make ends meet for the majority of uh, our populations? How can we make sure that we have growth of the things that we need and which are good for the planet and degrowth of the things that we don't want to have more, like, you know, huge SUVs, gas-guzzling ones? Uh, I will borrow the, your term, like it's a, a term that I use all the time. The only way of uh, confronting globalization in a humanist manner is through a new internationalism, a new progressive internationalism. Now, that used to be a very major part of left discourse, left thinking, uh, and it disappeared uh, somewhere along the lines. What happened? Where did it go? Do you have any thoughts? Well, the left disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, be, let, let's be clear on this. Uh, we have failed. Spectacular. We never recovered from 1991, uh, we never managed to reclaim a high moral ground or a high analytical ground. Uh, the left either went the way of the third way, you know, the Clintons and the Blairs and the Papandreou's in Greece and uh, the François Hollande's in France, the social democratic tradition that became utterly irrelevant, lobotomized itself and um, was co-opted by financialization, or it could become consumed with identity politics. And the result is, of course, then you don't have a narrative on how to, the, to change the world. Now we see, you know, in some places a revival of the left, Corbynism, Sandersism. Do you see any hope for some kind of revived internationalism there, or is this more of an inward-looking kind of revival? No, no, I do see a lot of hope, both uh, in the Bernie Sanders political revolution, as he calls it, and in uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Speaking of Jeremy Corbyn, I think the same thing applies to Bernie Sanders, even though I don't live in the United States now. And, uh, my my information is somewhat, somewhat uh, limited with, with regard to the United States. But the feeling I have, at least for Jeremy Corbyn, is that um, he has done a great deal of service to... Uh, to politics generally, and of course to progressive politics, uh, a service that we haven't seen for 40 years, because he has managed to succeed in two important dimensions. The first dimension is that he proved to all of us that the fact that we have an ironclad mass media that is determined to be regressive is no excuse for not doing well electorally. (laughs) And uh, the second dimension where, where, he, where he's made a huge contribution is to bring out of the woodwork um, a whole new generation of um, young men and women uh, who proved beyond reasonable doubt that they are very interested in politics. You know, and the, this was a, a very large uh, group of people that uh, were condemned to political apathy all these years. And the manner in which these young men and women have come out of the woodwork, so to speak, 
as a result of the progressive uh, narrative of people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn um, is very inspiring because they are clearly internationalists. They are anti-parochials. They do want to link uh, hands across national borders, even continents. Uh, What we now need to do, we we need to provide them with uh, the political narrative or to allow them to be part of of the creation of the political narrative, I should say, uh, that brings about this new internationalism. We're We're not there yet. The Bernie Sanders mover, uh, m- movement is very um, U.S. Uh, uh, introspective, and similarly, the Jeremy Corbyn crowd, while they do have internationalist uh, undertones and overtones, uh, they're concentrating on how to get rid of the Tories and how to change the political uh, situation and dynamic in the United Kingdom, which is perfectly understandable. But what we must do is we must present to uh, both sides of the Atlantic, and not just to the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn supporters, but more broadly, uh, a new internationalism that can uh, re-energize passion in a progressive uh, manner. Because the, so far, passion has been energized only by the Donald Trumps and the neo-fascists on both sides of the Atlantic. Corbyn ducks the Brexit question, and there's certainly a lot of people on the labor left who uh, are Lexiters. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of people around Sanders, uh, when they start talking about trade, they sound indistinguishable from Donald Trump. Of course, Tom- Trump is completely phony in his rhetoric. But there is a tendency to blame trade for all of our economic woes, which means international problems. Now, certainly a lot of trade agreements are uh, basically just, you know, turning the globe into a free fire zone for capital. But um, there's this kind of unwillingness to, to um, focus on the domestic sources of your discontents and an eagerness uh, to blame foreigners in some sense. Do you see any way out of that? Well, how about the following? We should distinguish trade from all those uh, nasty, toxic things that are inside, inbuilt within TTIP, TPP, those trade, supposedly trade uh, agreements, but they have nothing to do with trade. They have to do with power. They have to do with monopoly rights. So um, if you take TPP or TTIP, or CEDA, for that matter, uh, what is toxic about them is not the free trade part. Uh, free trade is fine. If, if, you know, if an Indonesian produces some tangible commodity and they want to sell it to us, um, I don't see what is so progressive about slapping a tariff or a quota on it. But the, the highly problematic reactionary part of these trade agreements is, firstly, the dissolution of democratic uh, and judicial processes in our countries. So when a multinational gets the right through this trade agreement to prosecute the government in a tribunal that is, has been set up by lawyers employed by the multinational, then you know that uh, democracy has died. This is what we should be aiming at, not the trade part of the trade agreements, but the non-trade part of the agreements that dissolves democracy, uh, prevents governments and local governments and cities to um, impose their own environmental and labor standards. And we should, um, uh, you know, if we want to prevent the dumping of uh, cheap labor and exploited labor, uh, how about introducing as part of the trade agreements minimum living wages uh, for any country participating in such free trade agreement? So we should not go against free trade agreements 
or trade agreements, we should go against the parts of the trade agreements that spread the toxic power of uh, multinationals, that diminish democratic process, and which set one working class against another. Now, the DM25 movement, which uh, you're working with now, um, is an attempt to uh, develop some kind of uh, progressive internationalism across Europe. Um, you're about to turn into a party, you told me? Yes, uh, we have already voted uh, amongst the organization. We're not going to turn our movement into a party, but we're, but we're going to create what we call electoral wings of our party in different countries. And our objective is uh, May 2019. May 2019 is when the European Parliament elections take place. And we will try to do something weird and wonderful that has never been tried before. And that is to uh, present a single manifesto, a single policy agenda across at least 10 different countries with a transnational party list, if you want, a transnational party and candidates that uh, stand together independently of whether they are filling their candidacies in Poland, in Denmark, in Greece, in France, and so on and so forth. This has never been tried before. Uh, we shall see how it turns out. But firstly, it's great fun trying. And secondly, it um, gives hope uh, to many people, even those who do not necessarily agree with us or support us, of this uh, alternative to the fake opposition between globalization on the one hand and parochialism or nationalism on the other, the alternative being progressive internationalism, which is what we're trying to implement in, in practice by running across different countries with a single agenda and a single party list. Okay, what, what are the outlines of the agenda? What, what would this look like in, in practical terms? Well, we call it the European New Deal, uh, and immediately you can see the connections with uh, the United States and the New Deal tradition of FDR, uh, of course, adapted to European conditions. We have a very comprehensive economic and social policy agenda, which we, exp we, we will try to explain to voters across Europe, uh, would uh, do for the, the European Union that which uh, the New Deal and the Great Society project of LBJ in the 1960s did for the United States. In other words, uh, to firstly put the, the financial genie in the bottle and back in its bottle where it belongs, to constrain financialization, to create uh, new payment systems that compete with commercial banks, to use the combined power of the European Investment Bank, which is many times the size of the World Bank, surprise, surprise, and the European Central Bank, in order to um, fund and manage pan-European green investment-led recovery projects, and at the same time deal with public debt and banking crisis, as well as adopting something like the food stamps program of the United States across Europe to be funded by the senior profits of the European Central Bank. So there is a very practical element to our proposal, things that can be applied you know, on Monday morning without any great constitutional or treaty changes so as to change the atmosphere, to simulate a federal democracy without actually having one, to create a new internationalism and a spirit of hope that Europe can be the source of solutions and not just problems for Europeans. And that can be later used in the next two, three, four, five years as a foundation upon, upon which to build a constitutional process, a process by which 
Europeans will draft uh, that which we do not have, which is a European democratic constitution. I could hear German objections. This is all a scheme just to take our money and give it to those lazy Mediterraneans. Um, how do you answer that kind of <laughs> critique? Well, in the best possible way, Doug, most of our members of DiEM25 come from Germany. So there is no such thing as the Germans, as Monty Python, the famous British uh, comedians once said. <laughs> there are many kinds of Germans. And the most um, fulfilling and hopeful message that I can uh, bring to our audience is that um, progressives across Europe are binding together independently of whether they are German, French, Italian, Greeks, whatever. And uh, we are creating a new narrative, a narrative that does not pit Greek against German, Italian versus French, but um, recovers the, the old proletarian internationalism that you refer to with doses of liberalism in it along the lines of uh, policy recommendations that um, uh, start off very moderately how to redeploy existing institutions in a way that uh, serves the public interest, and by public I mean the European public interest, uh, and then extend to radical proposals for uh, the post-capitalism that must come. Transnational networks of right-wing authoritarians are flourishing right now with coordinated political campaigns that are disrupting elections around the globe. This is a project masterminded by Donald Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. So now it's time for the left, especially the American left, to go on the offensive and reclaim its tradition of internationalism by campaigning around shared platforms and policies in many countries. The effort to establish a progressive international is being led right now by Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister. For comment and analysis, we turn to Atusa Abrahamian. She's senior editor at The Nation. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the London Review of Books, Le Monde, and other publications. And she's author of the book, The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. Atusa, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Well, Giannis uh, met with American progressives recently at a big gathering in Vermont sponsored by the Bernie Sanders Institute, the Sanders Institute. You were there. Before we talk about that meeting, remind us, who is Giannis Varoufakis and why is he so important today? So Varoufakis is uh, an economics professor. He's Greek. Uh, and he became quite well-known, you could even say infamous, in 2015, when he was uh, the Greek party Syriza's finance minister, Syriza was elected to government, uh, I think it was in January, and this was in the middle of some pretty fraught debt negotiations with uh, Europe, with the European Central Bank, the, the Troika, um, which was trying to impose austerity on Greece. So in 2015, Varoufakis went to Brussels to negotiate Greece's debt, and uh, long story short, they ended up having a vote in Greece about whether he should proceed and, and threaten to leave the EU if he didn't get a good deal. And the people voted yes, proceed. But then Alexis Tsipras, the leader of Syriza, kind of threw Varoufakis under the bus and said, no, we can't do that. And so he wound up resigning from his post, leaving Brussels. And, uh, you know, here we are now. And Giannis right now is running for office, actually for two offices. Please explain. 
he is running in his home country of Greece, where he's leading a party called Mera 25. And in Germany, uh, Yanis Varoufakis is running under DiEM25's umbrella to become a member of the European Parliament representing Germany. So the way he was able to do that is very clever. He and his team realized that to run for MEP in Germany, all you got to do if you're a European citizen is to uh, show proof of residence. And he rented an apartment from a friend, also a DM25 member, went to town hall, registered, and, and there you go. He was eligible to run for office. So that's how he ended up running for office in two countries at the same time. And what was that Vermont event at the Sanders Institute? And, and what was Giannis hoping to accomplish there? The, the Sanders Institute is, uh, it's worth noting that it's separate from Senator Sanders. Uh, the Sanders Institute is run by Jane Sanders, Bernie's wife, and uh, David Driscoll, who is Jane Sanders' uh, son from another marriage. So it's not a, a Senator Sanders enterprise. However, it bears his name. You know, it's in the family. And so he was there. Uh, the Sanders Institute had a kind of gathering, a meeting of minds uh, of, you know, the best and brightest progressives in the country and around the world. And one of the sessions of this conference uh, was dedicated to internationalism. And that's where Yanis Varoufakis, along with Jeffrey Sachs and Ada Kalau, the mayor of Barcelona, a couple of other people, announced that this progressive international was 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 launched. And yeah, it was it was a panel. They launched it. They said, you know, progressives need to be in this together to to vanquish the threat of authoritarian nationalism. But you know what they're actually going to do uh, remains to be seen. So we have the PI, the Progressive International, and then we have DM twenty five. That's capital D, little I, capital E, capital M. What is what does the acronym DM twenty five stand for? DM25 is an acronym for Democracy in Europe Movement, the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. And it's a pan-European political movement launched uh, by Varoufakis in 2015. So they, they love their acronyms. So this event at the Sanders Institute takes us back to Bernie. Bernie's campaign in 2016 was very much centered appropriately on American issues. You know, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, free college tuition. He said almost nothing about other countries or about international issues. Did you see signs at the Vermont gathering that, that Bernie or the Bernie people were changing on that score? Bernie's thinking has definitely evolved um, on matters related to internationalism and foreign policy. If you'll recall in 2016, one of the most valid critiques I thought of Bernie was that he doesn't have a foreign policy. He doesn't know what's going on elsewhere. He doesn't talk about it. And over the past two years, I think it's been totally inevitable to engage with the rest of the world because the same things that are happening in, in political life in the U.S. are happening in Europe, uh, are happening in Brazil, are happening in Russia, China, um, the Philippines. You know, you have the rise of these authoritarian strongmen um, that some people call illiberal, illiberal democracies. And this is a huge threat, um, not only to some conceptions of democracy, but certainly to leftism and certainly to progressivism. And uh, I think Bernie Sanders, Yanis Varoufakis, all of these uh, people in their own way are coming to grips with the fact that we need to have something bigger than, you know, socialism in just one country or progressivism in one country. There's got to be a coordinated network of groups working together uh, to defeat these guys. And of course, Bernie is not the only progressive 
political candidate in the world to be focused on his own country. Don't many social democratic parties in Europe have the same kind of focus on social programs in their in their own countries rather than internationalism? That's that's not crazy or narrow minded. Elections happen inside national boundaries and elected officials be are the heads of nations which have boundaries. Absolutely. Um Fortunately or unfortunately, that is the case, and I think we're going to be living with nation-states and borders for the foreseeable future. I think what Varoufakis is doing is actually intervening and saying, hey, guys, you may very well be running for office in Germany, in Greece, in Spain, wherever you happen to be from, but don't forget there's a whole other world out there. Um, And don't forget that advancing a progressive agenda cannot happen in a vacuum. You can't have an island of progressivism and, you know, havoc everywhere else. That's just not how it works. And the fact is that today our economies are global, our supply chains are global, bankers have global networks, right-wingers have global networks, centrists have global networks. So why don't progressives do more in this area? There needs to be a lot more coordination and I think that's what's behind Varoufakis's defense of maybe not international organizations as we know them today, but of the concept of an international organization and of the potential for more progressive multilateral and international organizations. I mean, imagine the possibilities if the ECB, the IMF, and the World Bank all had pe- like the best interests of working people in mind instead of simply serving, uh, you know, lenders and capitalists. That's a really utopian vision, but I don't think that it's one that we should abandon right off the bat. Well, let's talk specifics here. What What is the starting point for the progressive international in terms of policies which could be introduced in all the countries that are part of it? DM 25 talks about a Green New Deal for Europe. This presumably would, would involve investment in infrastructure that, that is carbon neutral, um, that's good for the environment. This would create jobs. This would create tax revenues. It would stimulate economies. It would require a lot of buy-in from all of the member states of the European Union and beyond, right? If we want to make a dent in climate change, it's, it can't just be Europe or the U.S. It's got to be lots of countries. So public investment across the continent. Varoufakis has spoken about uh, socializing benefits and, and high labor standards rather than social, like spreading austerity. DiEM25's big, big sticking point is they are against austerity and they are, they are against cost cutting. So it's more of a, a stimulus for these economies. And uh, beyond that, I think, you know, an element that the right has really seized upon at the right international or the nationalist international, whatever you want to call the Steve Bannon affiliated uh, groups of the world, is that they really have a strong message that's based on fear. And I think that there needs to be better messaging from the left. There needs to be better social media. Uh, I think that the progressive international might play a role in, in helping groups out with this. But there needs to be a narrative intervention, which is that, you know, we can't base our politics on fear and there has to be progress. Right. There has to be investment in the public sector and in people and in workers. And if this sounds very vague, then that's because it is. The Progressive International is literally right now, it's a website, it's a video and it's some nice words. So we can't really say too much more than than what I'm saying. Of course, a Green New Deal and anti-austerity are not the most immediate issues that the European Union is facing right now. 
The most immediate issue, of course, is migration, as you said. And let's remember that Hillary Clinton said in November that Europe must curb immigration in order to stop right-wing populists. What does uh, Giannis and his allies say about that? The thinking is that you can't capitulate to the terms that the far right has set on the political conversation. You can't say, oh, well, we need to, we need to you know, make concessions on migration uh, because that's what's going to win us elections. That's just playing by their rules. Uh, the goal is to change the conversation. Uh, I think it's worth talking a little bit about what DM25 and, and this broader progressive international idea has to say about migration. And, that, and that's that they're not calling for free-for-all, for everyone to move everywhere, wherever they want at any given moment. Uh, for them, a strong foundation for migration policy is creating circumstances where people don't need to move unless they want to. So moving because you're not making enough money at home and you have to feed your family, that that's not voluntary migration. That's sort of forced. You know, you don't really have a choice. You got to move. You got to go to Germany to make enough money. And the thinking behind the Progressive International is if we put enough public investment in a country like Greece, where people can have health care, they can have jobs, they can feel secure um, and feel less precarious, then they won't be moving to Germany. Then they won't be moving anywhere. I mean, people, I think, would rather stay with their families and be in the community they grew up in or around people they know. And uh, so ending forced migration is a different way to think about migration than, well, you know, let in fewer migrants. If, if we create circumstances where people don't need or want to move, then we've solved the problem, haven't we? Not everyone agrees. Not all the progressives who were at that Vermont gathering agreed with Yanis uh, and Bernie on this. You spoke with Winnie Wong, the co-founder of People for Bernie, who had some fairly sharp criticisms of what Yanis was proposing for a progressive international. I think Winnie's you know, objections to, to Varoufakis are less about his ideas, which everyone seems basically on board with. You know, a lot of people say, oh, this pie in the sky is never going to happen. No one says it's wrong. No one says it's bad. I think that the issue is that Varoufakis is perceived as someone who maybe parachutes in, has these high-level discussions, ex- expects everybody to follow him, but really isn't doing the, the nitty-gritty grassroots work of organizing people on the ground. And uh, that's an objection that I've heard a lot. I think it's a valid criticism. And to be fair, I don't, I don't think that Varoufakis is really like a community organizer kind of guy. So, Atusa, do you have any concluding thoughts about all of this? Well, I'm just really happy that somebody is uh, taking the time and, and has a platform to put their weight behind internationalism and specifically left internationalism. I don't know that this is going to be much more than a, a narrative intervention and, and a sort of a curtain raiser for what is to come. Um, but And I think, listen, uh, people have various thoughts on Varoufakis, but he does play a really important role here in that if he didn't, if he wasn't saying these things, if he didn't exist, you'd have to make him up, right? Someone has got to say these things and he has a great platform. He's, you know, charismatic. Uh, He gets a lot of media attention and uh, I'm just really glad he's doing this. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. 
Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do, or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. There's a question I've been puzzling over and writing about for pretty much all of my adult life. Why do some large-scale crises jolt us awake and inspire us to change and evolve, while others might jolt us a bit, but then it's back to sleep? Now, the kind of shocks I'm talking about are big. A cataclysmic market crash, rising fascism, an industrial accident that poisons on a massive scale. Now, events like this can act like a collective alarm bell. Suddenly, we see a threat. We get organized. We discover strength and resolve that was previously unimaginable. It's as if we're no longer walking but leaping. Except our collective alarm seems to be busted. Faced with a crisis, we often fall apart, regress, and that becomes a window for anti-democratic forces to push societies backwards, to become more unequal and more unstable. Ten years ago, I wrote about this backwards process, and I called it the shock doctrine. So, What determines which road we navigate through crisis? Whether we grow up fast and find those strengths or whether we get knocked back. And I'd say this is a pressing question these days because things are pretty shocking out there. Record-breaking storms, drowning cities, record-breaking fires, threatening to devour them, thousands of migrants disappearing beneath the waves, and openly supremacist movements rising in many of our countries. There are torches in the streets. And now there's no shortage of people who are sounding the alarm. But as a society, I don't think we can honestly say that we're responding with anything like the urgency that these overlapping crises demand from us. And yet we know from history that it is possible for crisis to catalyze a kind of evolutionary leap. And one of the most striking examples of this progressive power of crisis is the great crash of 1929. There was the shock of the sudden market collapse, followed by all of the aftershocks, the millions who lost everything thrown onto breadlines. And this was taken by many as a message that the system itself was broken. And many people listened and they leapt into action. In the United States and elsewhere, governments began to weave a safety net so that the next time there was a crash, there would be programs like social security to catch people. 
There were huge job-creating public investments in housing, electrification, and transit. And there was a wave of aggressive regulation to rein in the banks. Now, these reforms were far from perfect. In the U.S., African-American workers, immigrants, and women were largely excluded. But the Depression period, along with the transformation of allied nations and economies during the World War II effort, show us that it is possible for complex societies to rapidly transform themselves in the face of a collective threat. Now, when we tell the story of the 1929 crash, that's usually the formula that it follows, that there was a shock and it induced a wake-up call and that produced a leap to a safer place. Now, if that's really what it took, then why isn't it working anymore? Why do today's nonstop shocks, why don't they spur us into action? Why don't they produce leaps, especially when it comes to climate change? So I want to talk to you today about what I think is a much more complete recipe for deep transformation catalyzed by shocking events. And I'm going to focus on two key ingredients that usually get left out of the history books. One has to do with imagination, the other with organization, because it's in the interplay between the two where revolutionary power lies. So let's start with imagination. The victories of the New Deal didn't happen just because suddenly everybody understood the brutalities of laissez-faire. This was a time, let's remember, of tremendous ideological ferment, when many different ideas about how to organize societies did battle with one another in the public square, a time when humanity dared to dream big about different kinds of futures, many of them organized along radically egalitarian lines. Now, not all of these ideas were good, but this was an era of explosive imagining. This meant that the movements demanding change knew what they were against, crushing poverty, widening inequality, but just as important, they knew what they were for. They had their no and they had their yes too. They also had very different models of political organization than we do today. For decades, social and labor movements had been building up their membership bases, linking their causes together, and increasing their strengths, which meant that by the time the crash happened, there was already a movement that was large and broad enough to, for instance, stage strikes that didn't just shut down factories, but shut down entire cities. The big policy wins of the New Deal were actually offered as compromises because the alternative seemed to be revolution. So let's adjust that equation from earlier. A shocking event plus utopian imagination plus movement muscle, that's how we get a real leap. So how does our present moment measure up? We are living, once again, at a time of extraordinary political engagements. Politics is a mass obsession. Progressive movements are growing and resisting with tremendous courage. And yet we know from history that no is not enough. Now, there are some yeses out there that are emerging, and they're actually getting a lot bolder quickly. Where climate activists used to talk about changing light bulbs, 
Now we're pushing for 100% of our energy to come from the sun, wind, and waves, and to do it fast. Movements catalyzed by police violence against black bodies are calling for an end to militarized police, mass incarceration, and even for reparations for slavery. Students are not just opposing tuition increases, but from Chile to Canada to the UK, they are calling for free tuition and debt cancellation. And yet this still doesn't add up to the kind of holistic and universalist vision of a different world that our predecessors had. So why is that? Well, very often we think about political change in defined compartments these days. Environment in one box, inequality in another, racial and gender justice in a couple of other boxes, education over here, health over there. And within each compartment, there are thousands upon thousands of different groups and NGOs, each competing with one another for credit, name recognition, and of course, resources. In other words, we act a lot like corporate brands. Now, this is often referred to as the problem of silos. Now, silos are understandable. They carve up our complex world into manageable chunks. They help us feel less overwhelmed. But in the process, they also train our brains to tune out when somebody else's issue comes up and when somebody else's issue needs our help and support. And they also help keep us from seeing glaring connections between our issues. So for instance, the people fighting poverty and inequality rarely talk about climate change, even though we see time and again that it's the poorest of people who are the most vulnerable to extreme weather. The climate change people rarely talk about war and occupation, even though we know that the thirst for fossil fuels has been a major driver of conflict. The environmental movement has gotten better at pointing out that the nations that are getting hit hardest by climate change are populated overwhelmingly by black and brown people. But when black lives are treated as disposable in prisons and in schools and on the streets, these connections are too rarely made. The walls between our silos also means that our solutions, when they emerge, are also disconnected from each other. So progressives now have this long list of demands that I was mentioning early, earlier, those yeses. But what we're still missing is that coherent picture of the world we're fighting for, what it looks like, what it feels like, and most of all, what its core values are. And that really matters. Because when large-scale crises hit us and we are confronted with the need to leap somewhere safer, there isn't any agreement on what that place is. And leaping without a destination looks a lot like jumping up and down. Fortunately, there are all kinds of conversations and experiments going on to try to overcome these divisions that are holding us back. And I want to finish by talking about one of them. A couple of years ago, a group of us in Canada decided that we were hitting the limits of what we could accomplish in our various silos. So we locked ourselves in a room for two days and we tried to figure out what bound us together. In that room were people who rarely get face to face. There were indigenous elders with hipsters working 
on transit. There was the head of Greenpeace with a union leader representing oil workers and loggers. There were faith leaders and feminist icons and many more. And we gave ourselves a pretty ambitious assignment, agreeing on a short statement describing the world after we win. The world after we've already made the transition to a clean economy and a much fairer society. In other words, instead of trying to scare people about what will happen if we don't act, we decided to try to inspire them with what could happen if we did act. Sensible people are always telling us that change needs to come in small increments, that politics is the art of the possible, and that we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Well, we rejected all of that. We wrote a manifesto, and we called it The Leap. I have to tell you that agreeing on our common yes across such diversity of experiences and against a backdrop of a lot of painful history was not easy work, but it was also pretty thrilling because as soon as we gave ourselves permission to dream, those threads connecting much of our work became self-evident. We realized, for instance, that the bottomless quest for profits that is forcing so many people to work more than 50 hours a week without security and that is fueling this epidemic of despair is the same quest for bottomless profits and endless growth that is at the heart of our ecological crisis and is destabilizing our planet. It also became clear what we need to do. We need to create a culture of caretaking in which no one and nowhere is thrown away, in which the inherent value of all people and every ecosystem is foundational. So we came up with this people's platform. And don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you out loud. If you're interested, you can read it at theleap.org. But I will give you a taste of what we came up with. So we call for that 100% renewable economy in a hurry, but we went further. Calls for new kinds of trade deals, a robust debate on a guaranteed annual income, full rights for immigrant workers, getting corporate money out of politics, free universal daycare, electoral reform, and more. What we discovered is that a great many of us are looking for permission to act less like brands and more like movements. Because movements don't care about credit. They want good ideas to spread far and wide. What I love about the leap is that it rejects the idea that there is this hierarchy of crisis, and it doesn't ask anyone to prioritize one struggle over another or wait their turn. And though it was birthed in Canada, we've discovered that it travels well. Since we launched, the leap has been picked up around the world with similar platforms being written from Nunavut to Australia to Norway to the UK and the US, where it's gaining a lot of traction in cities like Los Angeles, where it's being localized, um, and also in rural communities that are traditionally very conservative, but where politics is failing the vast majority of people. Here's what I've learned from studying shocks and disasters for two decades. Crises test us. We either fall apart or we grow up fast finding new reserves of strength and capacity that we never knew we had. The shocking events that fill us with dread today can transform us, and they can transform the world 
for the better. But first we need to picture the world that we're fighting for. And we have to dream it up together. Right now, every alarm in our house is going off simultaneously. It's time to listen. It's time to leap. We've just heard clips today, starting with the promotional video from Progressive International, Who, What, Why spoke to Adam Tooze, who framed the 2008 financial crisis as the first of the global age. Start Making Sense talked with Michael Walzer, who discussed the need for a progressive foreign policy. Jacobin Radio interviewed Yanis Varoufakis about the need for progressive internationalism. Start Making Sense discussed the launch of the new international movement. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Naomi Klein describing how shocking events can spark positive change. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips with even more discussion of both the right and left-wing international movements that are taking shape. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I wanted to say Merry Christmas today is actually December 25th. I spent part of my day uh, listening to a number of your 2009 episodes, particularly uh, from uh, February and March of 2009. I did so actually by accident. I was going through some old files and came across a bunch of uh, your old episodes and decided uh, while I was doing other things to listen to them and was reminded of the realities that surrounded that time period. Now, most of us have, forgive, have forgotten these realities. We forget that um, the economic outlook at that time period was very grim and very, uh, very desolate to the mind. The reason why I'm calling today, however, is not just to walk down memory lane. You have done a number of episodes over this past year on economics and on the economic realities confronting us um, in this time period. The difficulty approaching economics presently, particularly from the progressive side of things, uh, is that we are looking to the government for many of the solutions that we are putting forward. While I am not going to disparage that, nor am I going to discourage it, I believe that that is one avenue that we need to continue pursuing. I want to emphasize that that is merely one avenue that we need to continue to pursue. Obviously, you yourself have been a big proponent of um, uh, uh, eliminating the consumptive uh, behavior that we have been engaging under the title of consumerism or even neoliberalism, which I believe we need to do. But more 
to the realities confronting us economically. Um, everybody obviously would probably know by now that we are experiencing uh, as a country issues in the stock market and that many people on Wall Street and from the mainstream media are predicting a massive downturn sometime in the next three to five years, possibly even in the next two years. This being a reality and the fact that it seems that these economic downturns are going to become more and more frequent, the unlikely is becoming more and more likely that the government, which has been under major assault for the last 30 years, uh, to shrink its size to the point where you could, quote, strangle it in a bathtub is what Republicans used to say. Uh, what corporatists used to say. They don't say it much anymore because I think they know it would frighten people. But since this is probably likely to occur sometime in the next 10 years where they can strangle it in a bathtub, we now need to consider whether or not we need to develop localized plans that will help alleviate the stresses that the government themselves cannot alleviate. I have been made familiar with several of these movements, if you'd like to call them that, rather it is the moneyless movement or uh, there's another one which I'm completely blanking on presently, uh, the localization movement. And I know many of us are familiar with that. But maybe as much attention as we are paying to getting the government, the federal government, the state government to do our will, maybe as much attention as we are putting into those areas of concern, maybe we need to put as much attention into the area of concern of localizing our economies and making them somewhat self-sufficient. Listening to your 2009 episodes reminded me just how dire things had gotten. And if it had not been for a President Obama, which gave people a lot of hope. I know we look back now and we say the man was a fraud. That may be true. But Barack Obama gave people a sort of hope in the future. Unfortunately, he didn't deliver, but it was true. He still gave us that hope. Without such a figure, we are going to have to lift our spirits ourselves in order to make a way forward. And I think a lot of the problems that we are experiencing with trying to come up with solutions is because we are lacking that optimism. Maybe this is a way for us to find it again. Again, keep up the great work and Merry Christmas to all of you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick uh, reply to V from New York. Boy, then, I, I really could have used your help if I had only known you were going through episodes from 2009. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, 
I struggled to get the 2009 retrospective episode done. I had to call in help from volunteers, but V was not among them. He didn't know that I needed help, and I didn't know he was listening to those episodes. As he said, he, he was, uh, you know, he called in on December 25th, but I, I didn't hear his message until today, January 7th, as I'm 90% done producing today's episode. So, um, I, yeah, I, I don't want to go down the Alanis Morissette track or anything. I'm not sure this qualifies as ironic, but, um, not only <laughs> could he have helped me out with 2009, but now, uh, you know, the second bit is, his message is focusing some, on something that's not exactly maybe, but, uh, somewhat opposed to the whole premise of today's episode. So, uh, so I get, I, that leads, leads me to the question for the day. He's focusing on localism. You know, we, we need to get back to focusing on local. I've heard that a lot over the past few years. I agree with it. There's a lot to be said for the, uh, the resilience is a word that comes up a lot that comes with focusing locally, building community, building infrastructure, uh, decentralizing systems, decentralizing power in a lot of ways. And that can be a more resilient system, a more resilient community uh, that can be prepared for anything. I mean, he's talking about uh, economic downturns, of course, climate change is coming to get us all. And uh, so, so there's been a lot of talk about moving locally. But then it's th at the same time, you know, in today's episode, one of the hosts specifically said his frustration has been that we've only been focusing on local and, and you know, in state and national. But it's like the progressive movement has completely lost sight of that international focus that we used to have. And to be honest, I sort of have to take his word for it. Like, I'm young enough that I never lived through a period in which a progressive movement had an international focus at all. Uh, same goes with foreign policy, which was talked about in today's episode. Like, I don't remember anyone having a strong, uh, thoughtful, progressive foreign policy. It just sort of doesn't come up. And, and I think it's because Again, as was discussed, we're, we're left with so many of these right-wing systems, these bits of infrastructure, the, just uh, remnants of, of how we've built society that it sort of nudged out any left-wing influence, and, and so foreign policy is one of them. So that's my question. Uh, v mentioned things like the moneyless movement and, and he couldn't think of any others off the top of his mind. Uh, the one that came to my mind was Transition Towns. A listener brought that up to me a few years ago, I think. I, I've been interested in uh, trying to pull together an episode on concepts like that. So if you are interested or active in any of these types of movements, these concepts, I'd love to hear from you and your perspective on the need to act locally. But then also, if you think there's any conflict between acting locally and internationally? Is this just the new think global, act local, where we just need to do both? We need to act local, build strong, resilient uh, systems at home, but we need to demand that our progressive policymakers and politicians think beyond our own national borders. That's the position I would hope to take. It, it's what I hope would work and would be doable. Uh, so the, I guess the question is just, can we do both at the same time? So if you have thoughts on that or anything else, as always, 
Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofleft.com. Thank you.